I got an article from the paper about a Gallup poll that was conducted recently. Did you know that about six in ten Americans say they read the Bible at least occasionally? About 60%. That's a drop, though, from the 1980s overall total of 73%. So we've kind of gone down. 16% of Americans say they read the Bible every day. 16, only 16%. Compared to 21% who say they read it weekly. 12% who said they read it monthly. And 10% who say they read the Bible less than monthly. A total of 41% said they never or rarely read the Bible. Do they know what they're missing? 14% of Americans say they are in a Bible study group. So apparently you are among that 14%. And then here's a startling statistic. About 43% of women say they read the Bible either daily or weekly compared to 29% of men. Shame on the men. Only 29%. Boy, that shows you, though, the tragic uh, problem that we have. And that is people, you know, not being willing to take their Bible and read it and understand it and find out what God has said to us. This is the most important book you'll ever run across. And I, don't, I know I'm preaching to the choir. I don't have to tell you how important it is to open it and study it. I'm glad you're with us tonight. That's what we're going to do. We're going to study the scriptures and we're going to tackle Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. Hope you got a Bible scan study guide when you came in. Anybody who didn't, if you'll raise your hand, we'll make sure you get one. Anybody need a study guide? Great. Just a few announcements before we get rolling here. First of all, there are no more tickets to the ladies. And of all the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus, none are more direct, more dramatic, more descriptive, really, than those found in tonight's chapters Isaiah 40 through 66. Isaiah 40 is one of the great chapters in the Bible. It is a classic. And immediately you notice that there's a shift in tone from what's been said previously. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah were full of woes and burdens and judgments upon the nations. But chapter 40 begins, comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Judgment is now past. It's time to comfort a downtrodden and a contrite people. And Isaiah 40 begins with a message of hope. Notice verse 3 has significant New Testament implications. It tells us, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. All four gospel writers identify this voice as John the Baptist. John was the voice crying in the wilderness. He was the forerunner who set the table really for Jesus's ministry. You remember John prepared the people for the love and the forgiveness that Jesus would offer. John preached a message of repentance. His goal was not really to attract a crowd or to win a following for himself. John's goal 
was to point people to Jesus Christ. You know, this should be our mission. In a sense, we are all forerunners of Jesus Christ. When the famous conductor Leonard Bernstein was asked to name the most difficult instrument to play, he replied, second fiddle. Guys, we are all called to play second fiddle to our Lord Jesus. We're to point people to Jesus, never to promote ourselves. You know what Leonard Bernstein's doing these days, don't you? He's decomposing. He passed away several years ago. Verses 6 through 8 are Jesus' message in a nutshell. He says, All flesh is grass. And its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. Leonard Bernstein is decomposing. But the word of our God abides forever. Think about it. A dozen red roses cost you about 80 bucks. And they're beautiful for only a few days. And how quickly your 80 bucks starts to shrivel up and dry up and wilt. And so it is with human achievement and accomplishment, and human beauty, even right human righteousness. What is it that lasts forever? What is the one thing that's permanent? Isaiah tells us it's God's Word. Only God's Word remains forever. In Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, the coming of the Lord was spoken of in conjunction with awful cataclysmic destructions. But in chapter 40, verse 11, we have a different picture presented to us. When he comes, we're told he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. See, here's another view. Not a savior coming in judgment, but a savior coming as a shepherd. This is why the rabbis had a difficult time deciphering the prophecies that related to the Messiah. Some passages depicted him as a conquering king, while others described him as a gentle shepherd. Which is he? Well, he's both. You see, what the rabbis didn't understand was that Messiah would come, but he would come twice. Once he would come as the good shepherd, afterwards he would come as God's conqueror. The rest of chapter 40 describes Messiah's grandeur. He holds the oceans In the cup of his hand, we're told. He measures the heavens with the span or the width of his fingers. Verse 15 says the nations are a drop in a bucket. They're nothing to Jesus. Verse 22 has some interesting scientific implications. The Lord says he sits above the circle of the earth. Note here, over 2,000 years before Columbus discovered the new world, the Bible had already told us that the earth was round. Isaiah had mentioned the circle of the earth. Man's wisdom said that the earth was flat, not the Bible. The God who created the heavens certainly knew its shape. Verse 26 tells us that God numbers and names the billions and billions of stars. And that's why Isaiah asks in verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. You see, the Jews had complained that God was unaware of their situation, unaware of their difficulties and their trials. But how foolish. 
Isaiah is telling us if God numbers the stars, he surely is aware of our needs and he is more than willing to come to our aid. Hey, if he numbers the stars, then certainly he cares about you. In fact, you are more important to God than the stars. You are a star in God's eyes. He loves you and he cares for you. The last verse in the chapter is a favorite one. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You see, a Christian is a rechargeable battery. When we run low of energy, we can plug into the Holy Spirit for a fresh surge. And the way to plug in to the power of God is to wait on the Lord. Think of waiting on God as a waiter serving a table in a restaurant. A good waiter is attentive. He's engaged. He's compliant. Waiting on God requires the same attributes. We need to be engaged and focused on the Lord. We need to certainly be compliant to His instructions. And we need to be attentive. Waiting on the Lord is like serving a table. And if we wait on the Lord, He will give us energy. He will give us elevation. He will give us endurance. You see, He'll renew your spiritual vitality so that you can step up. He'll give you wings like eagles, spiritual vision, so that you can look up. And He'll help you to run and not be weary. He'll bless you with spiritual valor so you can keep up. Energy, elevation, endurance. This is the help available to those who wait on God. Notice the comment that God makes in chapter 41, verse 8. Here he's identifying the Hebrews when he says, The descendants of Abraham, my friend. Imagine God introducing you as his friend. What an honor to Abraham. Remember, though, what endeared God to Abraham. It was his faith. And that's why it's important that we trust God, that we have faith in God. If we do, God will consider us his friends. In chapter 42, verse 3, here we find a verse that was quoted of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 8. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. And guys, this is how Jesus treats people. Look at the river reed that's been beaten down by the wind. Or look at the torch made of flax that's about burned out. You see, rather than focus on what's been lost, Jesus takes the little that's left and he nurses it to health. In other words, Jesus props up that person who's like the reed and who's been beaten down by life. Jesus is a splint. He fans the flame of the person who's like that torch, who's tired and almost burned out. Jesus is a flint. Jesus is both a splint and a flint. In other words, Jesus is the great encourager. Rather than get on your case for what you've lost, he'll take the little that remains and he'll work with it and he'll grow it and he'll turn it into something special. Much of chapter 42 speaks of Jesus. He's a light to the Gentiles, according to verse 6. He will open blind eyes, verse 7. He does new things, verse 9. 
And thus verse 10 tells us, Sing to the Lord a new song and His praise from the ends of the earth. The first half of chapter 42 speaks of Jesus' first coming, the last half, His second coming. In chapter 42, verse 14, the Lord makes an interesting statement. He says, I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. I believe this is God's cry after millenniums of watching the disparities. After sitting in heaven and observing the wicked prosper, watching the righteous persecuted. For years, God has held his peace. Heaven has been silent. But the day will come when God will shout like a woman in labor. When God will rise up, when God will act, when he will right the wrongs, when he will reward the humble. Heaven won't be silent forever. One day, God will shout like a woman in labor. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 and 2, God makes a powerful promise to Israel. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine when you pass through the waters. Now, here's the key phrase in this passage. God doesn't promise that we'll sail over the waters. He certainly doesn't tell us that we'll go under the waters. Thank the Lord for that. He tells us that we'll go through the waters. You see, trials are inescapable, but God promises us what's needed to get us through. He says, I will be with you and through the rivers. They shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. The last half of the verse reminds us of Daniel 3 and the three Hebrew young men that God delivered from the fiery furnace in Babylon. You see, no matter the trial, the Lord promises to get us through. Isn't that a great promise? Come tide, come flood, come fire. The Lord is able to deliver his people. Also in chapter 43, the Lord promises to bring back his people to their land. Notice verses 5 and 6. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. After World War II and the Holocaust, European Jews flocked to Israel from the west. Once the state of Israel was formed, Jews came from the east in the Arab nations. In the early 1980s, the Falasha Jews of Ethiopia were airlifted from the south back to their homeland. And in the 1990s, Russian Jews streamed into Israel from the north. The prophecy in these verses has been fulfilled even in our own generation over the last few decades as we've seen the Jews return to the land of Israel. In verses 10 through 13 of this chapter, God speaks of his eternal nature. He's the only God who has ever been, whoever will be. And throughout this chapter, God calls himself Israel's creator, her redeemer, her savior, her king. His people, in turn, should be his witnesses and should sing his praise. I love verse 19 of chapter 43. He says, Behold, I will do a new thing. You know, God is always doing a new thing. 
He's always surprising us. He's always working in new and unusual ways. It's exciting to walk with the Lord. You know, God loves to break the mold. You try to confine God to a box. Try to hem him in. Try to put parameters on his activities. And he will be faithful to blow out the sides of that box. Walking with God is a life full of surprises. It's an adventure. And that's why there is no other life I would rather lead than to walk with Jesus Christ. I love how the Living Bible paraphrases verse 19. But forget all that. It is nothing compared to what I'm going to do. For I am going to do a brand new thing. Isn't that neat? Jehovah, God of Israel, makes a statement in chapter 44, verse 6, that has some important ramifications. He says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now understand, there can only be one first. If you're first, you're the first. There can only be one first. There can only be one last. And yet Revelation chapter 1 verse 17 uses this exact terminology in reference to Jesus. That means that either there's a contradiction here or Jesus and Jehovah are one and the same. And here is a proof text for the Trinity, the triune nature of God. If there can only be one first, only one last, and both God and Jesus ascribed to being first and last, then they must be the same person. You see, when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, I love to take their Bible and point out Isaiah 44, verse 6, and Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. You see, in their own heretical translation, they have doctored the passages that blatantly teach that Jesus and the Father in heaven are one. But you see, here's a way to slip in the back door. Just take their own translation and pull up Isaiah 44, verse 6, then Revelation 1, verse 17, and show it to them. It blows their mind. There can only be one first, there can only be one last, but Jehovah and Jesus both make the claim, so what gives? Well, there's only one conclusion, and that is that Jesus is God. Verses 16 and 17 show the folly of idolatry. A man takes a log. He burns a piece of firewood. He uses some of the wood to cook over. Then he makes a god out of what's left. (laughs) What good is a god who is combustible? Who in their right mind would worship wood? The same is true, though, for a man who worships a car. Why worship a car that's susceptible to a crash? Or for that matter, a portfolio that's susceptible to a crash? Or a business that's susceptible to a crash? Do you worship? Do you spend all your effort and energy focused on combustible items? In Isaiah 44, the true God promises to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild its temple. Chapter 44, verse 28, and the first verse of chapter 45 refer by name to the king of the east 
who will come and liberate the Jews from Babylon, and Isaiah calls him Cyrus. Now understand, this Persian king won't be born for a hundred years. The fall of Babylon for another hundred and sixty years, which makes the mention of the name Cyrus here one of the most amazing prophecies in all of the Bible. We are told by the Jewish historian Josephus that when Babylon did fall to the Persians, Daniel, who was a uh, dignitary within the Babylonian court, he showed Isaiah's prophecy here to King Cyrus. And King Cyrus was so impressed that the Hebrew prophet had mentioned him by name over a hundred years earlier, that his initial decrees were to permit the Jews to return to their homeland of Judah. Cyrus even paid for the rebuilding of the temple with money from his own treasuries, and thus the prophecies of Isaiah were fulfilled. Isaiah 45, verse 6, explains the purpose behind this astonishing prophecy. That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. You see, prophecy reveals to us God's eternal nature, that he is the true God. God says of himself in chapter 46, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Guys, understand you and I, we live on a timeline. The words past and the words future have meaning to us. But God lives outside of time. He lives above that timeline. And the way he demonstrates that to us is by declaring an event before it happens. This is why prophecy is such a powerful tool to convince the world of God's omniscience and his omnipotence. And the Bible is full of prophecy. There are predictions in Scripture about cities and people and events. There are over 300 Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. Charles Ryrie has calculated the odds of one person fulfilling a 100 Old Testament prophecies by chance. He says to statistically account for such a possibility, you would need 200 billion earths, each populated by 4 billion people, to find one person who might fulfill 100 prophecies in sequence. That's an unheard of proposition. And yet Jesus fulfilled not 100 prophecies, but 300 prophecies. Obviously, it was not by chance. Jesus was the divine Son of God, the Savior that God sent into the world and told us beforehand about him. Biblical prophecy challenges the skeptic with powerful evidence for the existence of God. And that's why we need to learn about Bible prophecies. We need to share them and use them in our witnessing. God carried Israel in the past, and he will carry her in the future. And he says in chapter 46, verse 4, I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. What a blessing to have a God who is both willing and able to carry his people. When my kids were tots, I enjoyed carrying them on my shoulders. 
Now that they drive, I carry them on my insurance. I will always carry them in my heart. And I'll do whatever I can for them. And that's because fathers love to carry their kids. We love to enable and empower and to equip our kids. And God does the same for us. He carries us. What a great God we serve. Isaiah 47 is a judgment against Babylon. God gave Judah into their hands, but the Babylonians oppressed God's people. Now they'll experience God's wrath. Babylon's chief sin was pride. Verse 10 accuses her, Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. You know, Babylon was like the guy who did his crossword puzzles with a ballpoint pen. you got to think about that one now. In other words, he thinks he's always right. He thinks he can do no wrong. Intellectual pride has warped his perspective. The last of chapter 47 condemns Babylon for her long-time fixation on astrology. And Isaiah predicts that the astrologers, the stargazers, the fortune tellers will all be burned up. Guys, horoscopes are horrible. Don't consult your horoscope. It's a violation of God's word. God doesn't want us gazing at the stars. He wants us focused on his son, Jesus Christ. Horoscopes should have no place in the life of the believer in Jesus. In chapter 48... The prophet addresses the Jews, those who are professors, but not possessors. You know anybody like that? They talk a good talk, but they don't really have a relationship with God. They're told in verse 10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. You see, the Babylonian captivity purified the Jews. Seventy years in Babylon, the idol capital of the world was enough to convince the Jews of the vanity of idol worship. And their captivity had a refining, it had a purifying effect on them. And it's interesting, after their exile in Babylon, they never again worshipped idols. Their captivity did have a purifying effect. The judgment that God brings on the world in the last days, what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, will also have a twofold effect. It will, number one, punish the wicked world, but number two, it will purify the Jews. And again, the Hebrews will pass through a furnace of affliction. In the Old Testament, God called the nation Judah, my servant. Often Isaiah refers to the nation as my servant. But the Jews failed to serve God faithfully, and thus in the New Testament, God did a new thing. He chose another servant, a servant who would be faithful to him, and that was his son, Jesus Christ. And so chapters 49 through 52 begin to discuss the father's suffering servant. And these chapters reveal some of the most detailed descriptions of the cross of Jesus Christ. There are little features, little details that are included in these chapters that are even left out of some of the gospel narratives. And the only way we would know about them was that Isaiah had spoken of them in advance. Some scholars call these chapters 
the holy of holies of the Old Testament. Chapter 49 opens with the Messiah describing his preparation. He was given a special name before he was born. He was a polished, he was polished like a shaft of a sleek arrow. God destined him to regather Jacob and to be a light to the Gentiles. Of course, Jesus did the latter at his first coming, and the former he'll do at his second coming. Now, remember how Isaiah sees prophecy. We talked about this last week. It's as if he is lying on his back under a tall oak tree. All the limbs are up above him, and they look as if they're laying on top of each other. Some of those limbs are separated by 15, 20 feet even. But Isaiah, from his perspective, lacks that depth perception. This is how he sees the future. He's looking at the future, but he sees all these events, and some of them are just superimposed on top of each other. He doesn't realize that there are thousands of years separating them. Sometimes he talks about them as if they're one event. Sometimes he even speaks of events that are separated by thousands of years, and he mentions them in the very same verse. And that's what Isaiah does in these chapters. He is intermingling both the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. When Babylon sacked Jerusalem and took the Jews into exile, many accused God of forsaking them. But I love how Isaiah deals with the complaint of these Hebrews. Notice verse 15 of chapter 49. He says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. In other words, a mother would sooner forget her nursing child than God forget his people. I've had four kids, and I have noticed each time how a new mother becomes preoccupied with the welfare of her baby. Nothing is more important She is consumed with the needs of her infant. Throughout the scriptures, God refers to himself as father. But what this verse says to me is that God is a father with a mother's heart. He is strong. He is firm. He is as decisive as a father, but he is also soft and gentle and tender like a mother. God has father's hands. But he also has a mother's touch. And he would sooner, it would be easier for a mother to forget her nursing child than for God to forget you and your needs and the work he wants to do in your life. In chapter 50, Isaiah tells Israel that she suffers because she has turned her back on God. In contrast, though, God's other servant, the Messiah, he suffers because he has carried out the will of God. Verse 6 tells us, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Here is a detail of the crucifixion not even mentioned in the Gospels. Not only was Jesus' back beaten to ribbons, but his beard was plucked out. Imagine the pain of that ordeal. When Zach and Natalie were little, 
I wore a beard. And as babies do, you know, they have that little reflex and that little grabbing reflex. And, and I remember they would often take their little hands and they would, as I would hold them, and they would stick their little hands up into my beard and, and they'd just grab on, you know, and just pull. They didn't know what they were doing. Well, maybe they did, but I don't think so. But they, they would just grab, grab the little hair and they'd just pull and, and almost rip it out of your face, you know, and it, oh man, that, that hurts. But can you imagine what it would have been like when those Roman soldiers ripped the hair out of Jesus' flesh, literally ripped out his beard? In chapter 52, verse 14, it's taken one step further. There were told his visage was marred more than any man. The Hebrew scholars, Kyle and Delich, translate that verse so disfigured his appearance was not human. Their idea is that Jesus was beaten beyond recognition, that his face no longer looked human after the Romans were done with him. He looked like a boxer that had gone 15 rounds in a slugfest. Guys, make no mistake about it. If the disciples had held a funeral for Jesus, it would have been a closed casket funeral. Perhaps it was this severe facial scarring that kept Mary from recognizing Jesus after his resurrection. You remember he appeared to her, but she thought that he was the gardener. Remember, Jesus bore scars in his hands and in his feet. So why not his face? You remember in Revelation, John sees Jesus. But you remember how he describes him in Revelation chapter 5? He was as a lamb who had been slain. I've got a feeling that when we see Jesus, we may be in for a shock, a surprise. Right there, not only in his hands, not only in his face, his feet, but even in his face, we'll see his scars. And what will it do to us? I know it'll do to me. It'll melt my heart because I'll see immediately all that he went through so that I could be forgiven. And yet on the cross, even through his scars, you could see the resolve in his face. For verse 7 of chapter 50 tells us, For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He was confident. He was determined. Hey, how did he maintain such confidence? Well, notice in verse 8, Jesus tells us, He is near who justifies me. Jesus knew that God was with him. And in verse 9, he says, The Lord God will help me. Now, Isaiah 51 jumps from the cross to its conclusion. Jesus will reign over the universe. He'll make this world an Eden. He'll even usher in a new heaven and a new earth. In verse 9, Isaiah commands the scattered Jews to trust in the arm of the Lord. In the end, he will regather. He will comfort Israel. And verse 11 says, joy will come Sorrow will flee. I like verses 22 and 23. God takes the cup of trembling out of the hand of Israel and He serves it to His enemies. In other words, what goes around comes around. 
The nations who have persecuted the Jews in the end will be the ones persecuted. Isaiah chapter 52 verses 1 and 1 through 12 describe the wonderful day when the Jews left Babylon and returned to their land. And there the messenger arrives with the good news, your God reigns. They rose up, they departed, they returned to their land. Verse 11 tells us that the temple furniture that was stolen by King Nebuchadnezzar was returned to Jerusalem. And that brings us to Isaiah 53. The focus now becomes the suffering servant. It was Martin Luther who wrote, If you want to understand the Christian message, you must start with the wounds of Christ. And there is no better place to see those wounds than in Isaiah 53. The passage is prophetic indeed. Written 700 years in advance. But when you read it, you get the impression that Isaiah was an eyewitness of the things he describes. That he was standing right there at the foot of the cross. It's that real. In verse 3, Isaiah calls Jesus a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He says in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Remember, the Jews stumbled over the cross. Deuteronomy 21, verse 23 had said, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The cross was considered by the Jews to be a sign of God's rejection. What they didn't consider was the possibility that Jesus didn't die for his own sin, but he died as a substitute. I don't know why they didn't consider that. Because every time a lamb was slaughtered in their temple, it was substitutionary. It was in place of their sin. And so they were aware of the concept. They just didn't apply it to the work of Jesus. Verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced with iron spikes. He was bruised for our iniquities. The Romans beat him with fists and rods. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. You remember the Jews laid 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails on the back of Jesus. And by his stripes we are healed. It was substitutionary. Jesus did it all in our place. Obviously, God could have sent Jesus to die for our sins at a time when capital punishment was carried out by more humane means than a Roman crucifixion. Jesus could have come at a time when he would have been put before a firing squad or maybe subject to a lethal injection or the gas chamber or for that matter, even the guillotine, all the above are designed to do the job quickly, unlike the torture involved in a Roman crucifixion. You see, Jesus died the most hideous, the most barbaric, the more torturous, the most bloody death imaginable. Why? I think there are at least two reasons. For one, the cross shows the severity of our sin. When you look at what Jesus went through, you need to realize that's what you deserved. 
That's the penalty that sin brings. That's God's estimation of sin and what sin deserves. Sin is serious to God. That's why Jesus died the death He did. But the second thing it shows us is the extremity of God's great love. Of just how far God was willing to go so that we could be saved. When I look at the cross, I should think, here is what my sin deserves. But here is how far God's love was willing to go to pay the penalty for my sin. There is a famous hymn called Beneath the Cross of Jesus. It expresses this theology with poetry. Upon the cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, to wonders I confess, the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. Verse 6 says it all again. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7 continues the prophecy. As a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You remember when Pilate asked Jesus, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Jesus replied, Well, actually, he didn't reply at all, did he? We're told he answered him not a word, so that the governor marveled greatly. And so did anyone who was familiar with Isaiah 53. For another prophecy was fulfilled. Verse 8 mentions Jesus' death. Verse 12 of Isaiah 53 suggests that Jesus died among criminals. Of course, He did. Verse 9 predicted that He would be buried in a rich man's grave. Verse 10 even predicts Jesus' resurrection. He shall prolong His days. All amazing prophecies. There's a great joke about Jesus' burial that communicates a great truth. The joke goes, the rich man, Joseph, who owned the tomb, was asked by Pilate, why give your tomb to a criminal? And Joseph answered, oh, don't worry, it's only for the weekend. And indeed it was, for on the first day of the week, Jesus had cleared out forever. In Isaiah 53, we cry at the cross. And in chapter 54, we're told to dry our eyes, to wet our lips and sing. Messiah's suffering is cause for our singing. Before we go further, let me put chapters 54 through 66 in some context. Think of Isaiah 53 as a huge rock tossed into the lake. Now, what happens after that rock's entry? Well, circular ripples and waves emanate from the point where that rock plunged into the water. And the larger the rock, the further goes those ripples. Well, chapters 54 through 66 are the ripples that emanate from the rock of chapter 53. You see, the cross of Jesus creates ripples. It creates waves and ramifications that are far-reaching. For not only did the cross, not only did Jesus on the cross gain a pardon for our sin, the cross also pays for the restoration of an entire planet. 
One on the cross not, was not only a new heart for you, it was a new heaven, a new earth. Eternity was changed on the cross of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 54 verse 7 compares the pain God's people suffer in this life to the joys that we'll experience in the life to come. He says, for a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. The pain we taste now is nothing compared to the mercies that await us. And the rest of chapter 54 describe how God will bless Israel in the kingdom age when Jesus returns to reign over this planet. Chapter 55 is an invitation. Isaiah gets down here. He says, yo, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Notice the blessings of God's kingdom are not purchased with money. Dollars, shekels, francs, lira, yen. It's not what it takes. What is the currency of heaven? What buys the blessings of God? Hey, they're bought with humility. They're bought with repentance. They're bought with faith. And the rest of the chapter explains that. Isaiah 55 makes two important observations about God and about His Word. Notice in verses 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Understand, the word theology means the study of God. But the first truth that that study uncovers is that God is infinite. And since man is finite, that creates a problem for the theologian. How does a finite mind comprehend an infinite God? And see, we are immediately faced with our limitations. We conclude this is the one subject that by definition I can never master. Yes, God reveals to me certain truths that I can grasp. But God himself remains beyond my ability to comprehend. His ways are higher. His thoughts are deeper. I can only come humbly and grasp what he has revealed. And so for the theologian, there is no room for pride. There is no room for arrogance. You know, I used to struggle with these limitations. I used to want to know more. I used to want to have a theology that had all the I's dotted, all the T's crossed, all the different truths reconciled. And I struggled over the fact that, that I couldn't. But finally, I realized that if I could understand all there is to know about God with my little pea brain, then he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? He would be no bigger than my own brain. That, that We'd be in trouble if that were the case. The fact that I can't understand all His ways, that's the very thing that causes me to trust Him all the more. Too many theologians want to know it all. They can't deal with the mysteries of God. They're like the little boy who told his mom he was going to draw a picture of God. And she cautioned him. She said, Johnny, no one knows what God looks like. And he answered, they will when I get through with this picture. That's the kind of arrogant attitude that Isaiah warns us about. 
Never forget that we are all kindergartners in the college of God, preschoolers. Don't get frustrated with the mysteries of God, with the things that you can't understand. Don't bail out when you run across threads of theology that you can't reconcile and tie together. Remember, what's over my head is still under his feet. That's important. Always approach the study of God with a humble heart, with a broken spirit. I like what Mark Twain said. He said, it ain't those parts of the Bible I don't understand that trouble me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand and have a hard time obeying. Isaiah also tells us about God's word. Verse 11, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is powerful. Man, it's like a seed. It contains life. Just toss it out and it gets the job done. It grows. It fulfills God's purpose. You see, the Bible is like a lion. Don't worry about defending a lion. Just turn it loose every now and then. That's what we need to do with God's inerrant word. Chapter 56 lets us know that there will be no room in God's future kingdom for prejudice, for bias. No There will be outsiders in the kingdom. Not only Jews, but outsiders. People not normally allowed into the Jewish sacred assembly are going to be accepted by God in his kingdom. And here he mentions both foreigners and eunuchs. Verse 7 calls God's temple a house of prayer, catch this, for all nations. Not just Israel will be included, but all nations will come and worship God. In the kingdom age, I'll bet there'll even be some tech and gator fans in the kingdom of God. In chapter 57, the Lord depicts the sin of idolatry as the sin of adultery. You know, idolatry is a spiritual adultery. Judah cheated on God. She went to bed with idols. And the chapter is an awful picture of betrayal. And yet, amazingly, at the end of the chapter, God is offering forgiveness if his people will repent and come back to him. Isaiah 58 uncovers Judah's hypocrisy. As she fasts and prays and acts so pious, she oppresses her workers and is driven by greed. She's religious on the outside, but she's wicked on the inside. And God says to his people in verse 6, If you want to fast, here is the fast God desires. Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? In other words, God desires mercy and kindness, not just fasting and religious observance. And I see Isaiah 58 as a word to the religious right here in America. Don't expect God's support If all your agenda calls for is prayer in public forums, vouchers for private schools, and tax cuts. Because God desires much more than that. God desires social reform for the poor, for the oppressed. God desires for us to be generous toward one another. These things are also important to God. 
Pay close attention to the first two verses of chapter 59. They may be just for you. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. The reason a person feels estranged from God has nothing to do with God's ability to save or his willingness to save. God is able. God is willing. No, the reason a person feels estranged, we're told in verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. It's sin that creates a gulf between us and God. God wants to save. His arm is not too short to save. It doesn't matter how low you go. God's arm is long enough to reach out and catch you. The only question is, are you willing to repent? Are you willing to trust God for a pardon? Are you willing to put your faith in Jesus Christ and follow him? The rest of this chapter is a vivid description of a man who's lost in sin. He gropes. He stumbles like a blind man. He growls and moans. He is a sad, pitiful sight. Isaiah 60 is a chapter of hope. It calls for God's people to put off complacency and apathy. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. In the world's darkest day, God will raise up Israel as a beacon of light. The last seven chapters of Isaiah look to the day when Jesus returns and establishes his earthly kingdom. You know, everyone thinks that we gain most of our information about the end times from the book of Revelation, but not so, particularly when it comes to the kingdom age. Revelation 20 does tell us that Satan will be bound during that time. It also gives us the duration of the kingdom age as a thousand years. But the rest of what we know about Jesus' reign over the earth when he returns, we learn from the Old Testament prophecies and specifically from these last few chapters in Isaiah. Isaiah 60 tells us that during this time, the tiny country of Israel will dominate the globe. Verse 12 says, for the nation and kingdom which will not serve, for the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish. In other words, everyone will serve Israel. It's ironic, but the most battered and bloodied and maligned and hated nation on the planet for the last 4,000 years, Israel, will in the end rule the whole world. Isn't that amazing? The chapter goes on to describe how the world's wealth will be brought and used to build up Zion. Isaiah 61 opens with the words Jesus quoted that day in Nazareth when he went into the synagogue and revealed to the people the purpose of his mission. Jesus came to spread good news to the poor, to heal hurts, to issue pardons, to free those who are bound. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus read all the way down to the phrase, the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus will come again to bring judgment. But the first time, and today, he wants to heal. He wants to help. He wants to be a blessing. While the day is right, while the time is right, make sure you receive the goodness and the grace of God before it's too late. Even after his second coming, Jesus will heal Israel after the judgment is ended. He will swap a battered nation, beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And the rest of the chapter describes their double honor in the kingdom age. 
If it were not for the promises he made to Israel, I'm not so sure God wouldn't probably let this wicked world just annihilate itself, blow itself up. But he says in chapter 62, verse 1, For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. You see, God is not through with the Jewish people. He has made promises to Israel that he is determined to keep and keep he will. Notice in verse 7 of chapter 62, we're told that the Lord will make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. (laughs) Today it's anything but a praise, isn't it? It's a source of contention. But one day Jerusalem will be a reason for praise. Isaiah 63 is a report from the battlefield. We're on site in the battle for Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus is seen coming out of Basra. Now you remember, Basra was down by the Dead Sea. It was the city of Petra. And Basra is the site where the Jews in the last days will run to escape from the Antichrist. Now here we see Jesus coming up from Basra. And here on the scene, CNN's Wolf Blitzer, he's right there with an end-time interview. And in verse 2, Wolf asks Jesus why his robe is red. And Jesus tells him in verse 3, I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my garments, for the day of vengeance is in my heart. Jesus will come to bring vengeance. But that's at his second coming. Now, notice what Jesus says in verse 5 to the news correspondent. He says, I looked, but there was no one to help. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation. Jesus rescues Israel because he sees no one else willing to defend her. Traditionally, the United States has supported the nation Israel. But apparently, by this time, either that support will have eroded or will no longer be militarily capable to fight. For Jesus will see that no one else will defend her, and so he himself will come to fight for Israel. The good news is is that we won't, for Israel, the good news is that we won't be needed. Jesus will defend her. Here's what will happen. The Lord will return. As he does, he will destroy the Antichrist with the brightness of his coming, we're told in Thessalonians. He then will touch down on the Mount of Olives. He will liberate the Jews that are held up in Basra. And then he will come up from the Dead Sea to Jerusalem to establish his throne on the Temple Mount. And that's where he'll be asked, why is your robe red? And he'll say, because of the blood that's been splattered, that I've, that's been shed in my defense of God's people. It'll be a CNN special report on the battle for Jerusalem. Crisis in the Middle East will finally be over. Jesus will save the day. And old wolf and the rest of them will have a lot to howl about. Isaiah 64 may be the prayer that prompts the second coming of Jesus. It's a prayer of repentance prayed by the Jews who somehow have managed to survive the great tribulation and have fled to Basra. They cry out for deliverance. Oh, that you would rend the heavens 
that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence, that the nations may tremble. But in verse 6, they repent. They confess their sin. They say, all our righteousness are like filthy rags. And this is the verse that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 3. Literally, in the original Hebrew, it reads, all our righteousness are like used minstrel cloths. Hey, this is how God views our religious acts and our good deeds. Compared to His goodness, they're filthy, they're dirty. This is why we can't save ourselves. There is nothing that we can do to atone for our sin. There is nothing we can do to make ourselves worthy before God. And that's why we need a Savior. The cross of Christ is our only hope. We need to trust in Jesus. We need to live by faith. Isaiah 65 and 66 are the prophet's grand finale. And they give us details into what life will be like in the kingdom of God. Verses 20 through 25 give us a glimpse of life in the kingdom age. No more shall an infant live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die 100 years old. Notice, a person 100 years old will still be considered a child. I believe people will live as long in the kingdom age as they did before the flood. Look at verse 22. It tells us, For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. You'll live as long as a tree. If you've survived the tribulation and have lived on into the kingdom age, it'll be a unique time. The earth will be shared with saints like you and me, folks who either died or who were raptured and have already received their glorified bodies, along with sinners who will survive and make it through the tribulation period. This is the time when resurrected believers will reign and rule over the earth's mortal inhabitants. The remainder of the chapter describes how the curse of thorns and thistles will be lifted. The earth will be transformed into a garden of Eden. God will even end the hostility that exists between animals. Verse 25 tells us the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. Isaiah 66 verse 8 records an incredible prophecy. We're told, shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Isaiah looks to the future rebirth of the state of Israel. And he describes the momentous occasion as a nation being born in a single day. And that is exactly how it happened. Five months after the United Nations voted to partition Palestine and make room for a Jewish state, the nation of Israel was born. On May the 14th, 1948, Jews in Palestine declared statehood without a war, without a coup, without a civil war, or as as Isaiah said, without labor pains, the nation of Israel was birthed. Never in the history of the planet has a nation been reborn after 1,900 years of exile. Guys, the nation of Israel is a bona fide miracle. It's a nation born in a day. Of course, today, the tiny nation of Israel lives in constant danger. There are only 5 million Jews in the country, a country the size of New Jersey, 
And they're up against an Arab world of 55 million Muslims. And the vast majority of them would want to drive the Jews right into the sea. And yet, Israel will survive. For God has promised. Her most glorious days are still ahead. Verse 12 says that God will extend peace to her like a river. And the chapter closes by describing how the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem to worship God. One day we'll all tour Jerusalem. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us tonight in so many ways through the book of Isaiah. Bless us as we go. Help us to not just hear your word, but be doers of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.